Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Chat with the Designers, your live, online, interactive weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters across the Fruited Plains. This is your host, George N2APB, along with co-host Joe N2CX, back from his travels, all rested, refreshed, and uh, with tales from the road. But uh, we'll get to those, I'm, I'm sure, at some point. Tonight's show is a good one, we think. It's it's a uh, it's an exciting one for us because, as usual, we go through the uh, we go through a, we cover a lot of ground on basics and measuring and equipment and um, uh, radio uh, transmitter and receiver behavior and operating characteristics and how to measure those characteristics. That's a lot of what we've been talking about over the last, oh gosh, this is episode number 61, and we're coming up on our two-year anniversary next month, or um, actually in November. Two years. How about that? And during that time, we've covered an awful lot of uh, ground relative to those measurement uh, of characteristics and behavior and new devices that uh, come out enabling us to do our magic on the on the workbench and uh, have some fun along the way, but also to understand what we're doing. An area that gives me particular, uh, it always gets me thinking, and um, is, you know, like, uh, how much power am I putting out in SSB mode and phone mode? Um, how is the quality of my signal um, in phone, um, or, or even in uh, CW, of course? Um, a way to test that is by using a two-tone test oscillator. It's a well-known, long, time-proven uh, technique. For, uh, for doing that, for testing one's, uh, the quality of one's transmission, as well as to determining uh, the power, how much power is uh, ultimately getting out and being transmitted. But I'll bet you a nickel that there are not many of us who use this kind of test measurement on a regular basis, or perhaps even at all. Well, we wanted to kind of de demystify this a little bit tonight with a discussion about two-tone test oscillators and uh, with the approach of the analyze this approach. Um, the technique that we've used in the past, we've gotten a lot of good feedback on our approach for dissecting a circuit, a given circuit, either a hobbyist circuit or a professional circuit or a kit a schematic uh, that does one thing or another. And we thought in combining these two things here, one is looking at the two-tone test oscillator and then picking a product that uh, is available to us. It is low cost. It is uh, good quality and uh, just essential for the bench is the Elecraft uh, 2T Gen. The 2T Gen um, two-tone test oscillator is is just that. I have one. I've been using it, um, and Joe's been guiding me as I as I do these measurements on the test here on on test bench. And you even see a picture of that down further on the whiteboard. Um, and we're going to go through that, what it is, how it works, how we use it, the benefits for using it, and uh, we we hope to have a good time kind of uh, showing you all how to how what the benefits are from from doing this kind of a measurement and knowing the capabilities or the quality of your transmission. It's always a good thing. Much nicer than just pressing the button and hoping the signal's getting out to know what kind of quality that you have there. Before we get started, just a few words about the. Uh, about this uh, session here this evening, and um, hopefully you are all able to reach the whiteboard. Joe, maybe if you can take a, a second there and put the whiteboard um, URL up there, as we normally do, and make sure that you're following along with the whiteboard, whether it is uh, live here with the show tonight, or if you are uh, listening to a podcast version of this uh, Chat with the Designer episode, you will get the most benefit if you're able to kind of use your iPad or your, your tablet or your PC to follow along with our instructional material or reference material on the uh, the whiteboard and that is at uh, 
www.cwtd.org slash, and then today's date, which is September 17, 2013. So that's where we are, and um, hope uh, hope everybody uh, kind of raises a question in your mind as far as like, I don't understand that, and let me ask a question, because that's what we're here to do. And we'd li- really like to make this an interactive type of thing. Uh, it makes the, the show go uh, much nicer, much more lively, and um, to let us know where you're thinking, or maybe what the experience that you've had. I see a couple of experienced uh, guys here on the show and uh, looking to see what your experience has been on using two tones and injecting that into the microphone of your transmitter, the microphone jack of your transmitter. So um, let's get into it. Uh, Joe, what is in general the purpose of two-tone, of using two-tone test signals? How are they related, you know, like uh, along a spectrum? And what is it that uh, the two-tone combination looks to give us that maybe one's voice, which obviously contains a whole bunch of frequencies, why why doesn't the frequencies in our voice actually test sufficiently the voice channel of the transmitted signal? Okay, pardon me if I, uh, if I get a little little tickle in the throat here tonight, and I'm wheezing a bit, so excuse me if, uh, if the audio quality is not too good. <laughs> if I drop uh, drop the mic or drop the push to talk, it's because I've got a coughing fit. Sure, the um, uh, using two tones is very handy. One of the um, one of the issues in in using a linear transmitter, um, something to uh, transmit a, a linear signal such as voice, um, is that um, you have to keep the transmitter final linear. Um, with CW, it doesn't much matter. Uh, if you if you try to increase power um, and you know you think you're doubling the power and you only increase it by 30% because the uh, final amplifier goes into limiting, that's not a big deal because you won't distort the keying waveform. However, if you have voice and uh, you you um, increase the audio and um, the output from the transmitter doesn't increase uh, by the same amount, you go into what's called uh, uh, compression, where you, you can't linearly amplify the, uh, uh, the voice signal. So what a, a two-tone test oscillator lets you do is to put a signal on there um, that is relatively simple, easy to generate, but <clears throat> you can see the effect of having too much drive you can see either on an oscilloscope or a spectrum analyzer that you're driving the amplifier nonlinearly by having more than one signal component there. Uh, the two tones are chosen in frequency so that they're not harmonically related. So that if you're looking at it with a spectrum analyzer, um, as you generate the spurious products, they'll be uh, mixing products from the uh, two tones. If they were harmonically related, uh, you wouldn't be able to see the mixing products from the harmonics. But in this, in this case, case, since they're they're not harmonically related, the mixing products come up uh, uh, and are easily identifiable on a spectrum analyzer. Uh, Somebody got a question, comment? Yeah, Joe. Um, I'm wondering, and, and funny, uh, Rick had beat me to the punch a little bit. Rick just asked a question in our uh, in the text window about, you know, why can't we just use one tone? Why wouldn't that be sufficient? But I was going to go the other way. I kind of read in some of our references, our really good references, by the way, are at the end of the whiteboard per usual. Not a tremendous number, but the, the ones there, you ought to really get those, archive them, and read through them. One of those references, Joe, says that uh, uh, the best way to do it is to use three tones, although for HF they said that two tones is most common. So tell us why why not one tone? Why not uh, what is three? And then what does three tones give you more than two tones? <laughs> well, a one tone wouldn't tell you very much at all unless you were very carefully looking at the power. Um, 
you wouldn't be able to tell that you were generating any distortion because you wouldn't generate distortion with one tone. You just have one CW carrier. And you'd have to very carefully look at, uh, you'd have to vary the amplitude of the power, um, the single tone, and look at the resulting um, uh, output level to realize that it was not increasing linearly with the input. You can use three tones. Uh, it kind of complicates the matter because it, um, at least for an oscilloscope uh, picture, it makes a very, it can make a very confusing, tough to identify uh, uh, picture on the scope. Whereas a two-tone signal gives you a, um, a modulated envelope. There, are, there are pictures of it later in the in the whiteboard that you can see. But it looks like a modulated envelope, and you can see that the thing um, goes linearly. Uh, the, the two tones add linearly, and there's no uh, squareness. If you overdrive uh, in a linear system, if you have too much audio, uh, in the time domain on an oscilloscope, you'll see the top of the envelope flatten out. That means you have distortion because you're driving the amplifier so that uh, it is nonlinear. Uh, you could do something similar with three tones, then it gets much more confusing on a scope to see it. You really need a spectrum analyzer, and you could see it on a, uh, a spectrum analyzer, but um, it's it's less ambiguous with uh, only two tones. Two are sufficient because the two tones add algebraically to, uh, uh, to increase the output, uh, the transmitter power, and you can see the effect of two tones uh, very easily. Uh, as opposed to uh, one tone where you don't see much change at all, and uh, three tones where the picture gets uh, uh, tough to uh, tough to, for a human eye to identify. Well, that was the case before in the old time, right? Um, when you used to put some kind of test signal, maybe it was two-tone test signals, and you transmit it, and you look at the transmitted output, the waveform. Um, and I think when you said that when you started driving the, the, the transmitter into compression, that is when there were, you were increasing the drive, but the output was not linearly increasing as well. You would see like a flat topping of uh, the scope waveform, right? And that, uh, that was probably mostly an eyeball kind of uh, thing and maybe subject to a little bit of uh, uh, inaccuracies. Yeah, it's um, the time domain picture on an oscilloscope is a little more difficult to um to precisely identify when you're going to, into uh, nonlinearity, you can do it, but uh, uh, using a spectrum analyzer is a little more, uh, little more certain. You can you can tell with more precision what's going on. One trick, if you're using a scope and looking at the um, modulated envelope to see that you're not distorting, is you go up to where you think the distortion may be happening, and then just back off a little bit. So you're not getting the, the most power you can, but uh, you are staying linear. Um, that's a trick you can do. Uh, the best way, the easiest way, is is to uh, use an oscillos uh, spectrum analyzer. And I see in the notes that uh, our friend Alan, W2AEW, has a uh, YouTube video on uh, two-tone testing. So uh, uh, you can look at that for further reference. Go ahead. Oh, indeed you can. And Alan, I thank you for that. I saw a similar YouTube video that you had done on measuring output power, SSB power. Uh, using two tones, and I was attempting to put it in just before the show, but I kind of ran out of time, and the computer uh, wasn't cooperating. So I'll get those onto the whiteboard, and in the meantime, um, you know, if you're if listeners are so inclined, you can kind of bring that up and watch that as as you're listening to us. Joe, one more one more final uh, question before I kind of get into some of the specific detail of uh, the Elecraft. Uh, uh, 2T Gen is um, you know that, that we've been kind of playing around with the audio shaping of the microphone input at least on the SDR cube in order to get more power in the bass or uh, for a natural sounded voice um, or less power in the bass and more power therefore into the higher frequencies for punch power and DX 
So given that the input, any, any microphone input, is going to have some type of input shaping such that a tone at, say, 700 hertz is going to be amplified differently than a tone at 1900 hertz, which are the two general frequencies that we're talking about as far as the two tones, Given that we want to make sure that the levels are the same, how does how does that come into play? Um, how does one accommodate the different uh, gain or the filtering on the input uh, uh, microphone? Well, the, um, the simplest answer is you adjust uh, with a two-tone signal, and you note that the the uh, peak effective uh, power you get, the PEP you get, and then when you adjust when you adjust your audio system with a, with a real audio in there, you adjust so that the PEP is the same or less. And that way you, ins you ensure that uh, you're not causing distortion. Okay. I think that makes sense. Peak envelope power. Right, right. Okay. Um, any other general questions maybe before we start diving down into the Elecraft 2T Gen and its circuit? Uh, um, maybe you've used uh, it in the past, Pete, uh, or someone else in here. Um, I'm not sure anybody else. Uh, maybe Armand. Hey, Dave. Uh, Dave Collins, AA3UR. Welcome. I'm sorry, AD7JT. Good. Uh, good to see you here. And spend. Uh, good to have you back from travels. So, anybody else have any uh, experience with the two-tone gen test generation over the years? All right, it didn't uh, didn't see anything there, but that maybe is sort of as expected per our comment at the first. It's not the most uh, it's not the first test measurement that most guys have on their bench, um, but it's as we're going to go through. I think you'll find that it's going to be a very useful one to give you the confidence that you're uh, you're transmitting linearly and um, the quality of your signal is pretty uh, is as good as hoped. So, Joe, there's a couple of nice pictures there on the on a whiteboard about the Elecraft 2T Gen. And uh, I'm holding mine in my hand, my 2T Gen, and I'm looking at it here. And it's, it's a really nifty little thing. Easy thing to put together. Um, piece of cake to work, uh, to get working. Battery, battery operated. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the circuit, just as a start into it at the high level? Sure. Uh, yeah, the very highest level. It's a, um, ah, come on, Windows, cooperate. Oh, yeah, computers misbehaving here. At the very highest level, the uh, the two tone, the 2T Gen um, circuit by Elecraft consists of two uh, sine wave audio oscillators, one at 700 hertz and one at 1900 hertz, which cover uh, more or less the high and low end of the uh, audio spectrum. Um, they operate individually, and they generate very pure sine waves. Their circuitry is set up so that uh, there is no or very little distortion, perhaps 40 dB down or more. And those two tones are summed resistively um, with a resistor and potentiometer network and then fed to a another op amp, which you can use to drive the uh, transmitter under test. There are a couple pots in there, one of which is used to adjust the balance, that is the, uh, the amount of each of the two oscillators to account for any... Uh, uh, frequency roll-off you might have in your audio chain so that you can get the, uh, the same modulated signal from uh, each of the two tones. And there's also an output uh, potentiometer that's used to adjust the uh, exact output level to drive your transmitter. Um, there's other circuitry associated with it. Um, there's a, a, not a regulator, but a um, power splitter. One section of the op amp is used to split the 9 volts into two, four and a, two um, um, sections of uh, biasing at four and a half volts so that the op amps are biased in the middle of their linear range. Uh, one note that uh, I might say, um, 
The 2T Gen puts out something on the order of a volt peak to peak, as I recall. But uh, do you remember, George, when we were testing on the bench, we had to tweak some of the resistors to get a little more output. Uh, do you remember that? Yes, I do, come to think of it. Um, and then the capacitor C9 um, was also... Oh, no, 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 no. We had to add a capacitor to, in order to better isolate... I, I forgot what it was. Yeah, there was a 22K resistor. I'm looking at it right now, and I think that needed to be changed a little bit to make a better match to the input of the uh, the microphone input. Uh, but I thought there was also a capacitor. Oh, okay. I think I had to bypass a capacitor on the uh, on the cube input circuit, and that was it in order to get uh, uh, things just right. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a matter of matching. It was a matter of uh, getting the uh, proper audio levels with uh, some of the gains setup that uh, was on the cube. We had to crank a little more out of this uh, this baby, but it, was, it all worked out very well. Joe, the, um, uh, this reference, I mean, this circuit from Ellicraft is a Weenbridge audio oscillator. Actually, it's two Weenbridge audio oscillators. And every reference I've seen for other approaches to uh, two-tone oscillators also uses Weenbridge. Can you point out to us here um, what is it um, that makes these amplifiers a Weenbridge? I mean, what's the configuration? And why is a wind bridge perhaps uh, best suited in this particular case? Sure. The wind bridge is, is pretty good because it, it's a relatively simple oscillator. Um, there are two feedback paths. If you look at the um, look at the white bird schematic, uh, for, for example, on U1B, from the output to the inverting or to the non-inverting input, the plus input, there's a resistive network consisting of a couple of capacitors, a couple of resistors, which is actually the Wien bridge. That's a frequency selective network that gives you um, 180, uh, it gives you zero degrees phase shift at a certain frequency determined by those uh, component values. Um, and they use, uh, at least for the resistors, they use precision components in the oscillator here. So anyway, that sets the feedback, sets the feedback uh, to zero degree phase shift at the frequency of interest. Uh, another nice thing about the Wien bridge is that there's a separate feedback. There's a negative feedback um, circuit that has a couple more resistors and a couple other components in this Ellicraft circuit. Um, that provides negative feedback to control the output amplitude. There's also a, a transistor, a, a bipolar transistor, and a, a, a MOSFET transistor that uh, measure the output level converted to DC, and then they adjust the, the negative feedback based on the output level to set the output level exactly. If you didn't have something to uh, set the output level, the op amp would distort on either the high or the low part of its uh, voltage swing. You would get a, uh, a distorted sine wave. In this case, it, uh, it has feedback that sets the uh, negative feedback to adjust the output level so that it stays linear and it sets the output amplitude exactly. Um, very simple. It's a very easy way to do it in in uh, in this oscillator. Everything's very deterministic. And in fact, the Weinberg oscillator was invented by uh, someone we may have heard of, uh, William Hewitt, when he was a grad student at I believe it was Stanford. His uh, prof was Frederick Edmonds Terman, who uh, was one of the pioneers of uh, education in engineering. Um, wrote a very good um, radio engineering handbook, which is used for years. Bill Hewitt was a student of his. And he came up with the idea of using Weinberg oscillator with vacuum tubes. And for his feedback, his negative feedback to stabilize the thing, he used a vacuum tube. Uh, I'm sorry, an incandescent bulb. It was a three-watt uh, nightlight bulb in the, uh, I'm going to say emitter, in the uh, uh, cathode circuit of the uh, of the tube. 
Another interesting sidelight, uh, William Hewitt joined with uh, Mr. Packard. They formed Hewlett Packard in uh, Hewitt's garage, and the first product that they, uh, they made was a tunable audio oscillator. Their first big contract was with uh, Disney, Disney Corporation, where the oscillators were used for special effects in the, uh, the movie Fantasia. Uh, so a big tie-in there. Ironically enough, now we come many, many years later, Here's another um, startup in Silicon Valley, and one of their products uses the same Wainbridge circuit, although with uh, solid-state components. So it's kind of a neat tie-in to uh, uh, reinventing the wheel in a more modern way out there in uh, uh, the land of nuts, fruits, and flakes. <laughs> you're, you're going pretty well up into the last comment. Now I think all of our... All of our uh, Californian uh, podcast listeners are uh, either driving off the road and or flipping off the uh, uh, turning off turning off the um, um, the MP3 player. No, no worries. And funny as you mentioned that maybe I don't know it came on almost simultaneously. Alan um, W2AEW mentions in his text uh, text window that the early HP sine wave oscillator indeed used the incandescent bulb as the nonlinear element for that feedback. So um, that's interesting. I did not know the uh, the significance there of the of the Wien Bridge, um, but that certainly answered the question. Thank you. Um, and by the way, you, you mentioned at the end, of course, you know, yet now here in current modern days, uh, a, a Silicon Valley startup, of course, that you were referring to Elecraft, and that is uh, indeed this may not be their flagship product, it might not be their first product out, but it certainly is, at least in my mind, it's it's a very useful uh, very useful one on the bench. We'll get into how we used it there, Joe. Um, the L- MC6482 is a very nice amplifier. We used it. You and I used it in the uh, the micro 908 circuits, um, the uh, the four channel uh, amplifiers for the reflectometer. What makes it a, such a good circuit, and why why did uh, why do you think that uh, uh, Wayne and Eric used it here in the Weenbridge? <laughs> it's it's a good op amp. It um, it doesn't matter so much for their use, but it's uh, it's a rail to rail op amp. It's one that can drive its output uh, close to ground and uh, close to the or close close to the negative and positive rails very linearly. Uh, mo- many op amps can't do that. But besides that, it is a um, it's a CMOS input which has very low leakage and very high impedance, so that it doesn't load down. Uh, uh, load down any of the other circuitry, and it's also fairly low noise. So it's a it's a very good general purpose audio op amp, and uh, it's been used in any number of circuits. Um, made originally designed by a National Semiconductor, although I, I suppose it's TI these days. Very good all round um, low frequency audio um, op amp with pretty good distortion characteristics and uh, high uh, high input impedance and uh, very low current drain as well. Alrighty. And um, they come two or four to the package. I guess here they do four. And but uh, negative. The 6482 is a two per package, which is what they have here. The 6484, the one we used, has four in a package. Ah, thank you. You're right. I was trying to look at the numbering here on the pins while they were going past. You know, if I were to compare the two circuits, the two Weinbridge, uh, the Wien oscill- uh, the Wien oscillator circuits. The only difference is R2 in the um, in the positive feedback loop. Oh, as well as R12 in also in that. Um, so those two resistors are the same in each of the, of the cases in the 
in the case of the uh, the 700 Hertz, it's a 22.6 K resistor for both uh, R12 and R8. And then in the case of the 1900 Hertz, that resistor is um, like a factor of a, a third of that, which kind of makes sense. Um, it's about a third of the different, a third of the frequencies, um, two and a half times difference. So I guess the point I'm trying to make or ask is that the frequency determining component there of those op amps uh, as as oscillators is indeed that um, the R2 and the R8 with the corresponding uh, uh, input resistor going to that summing junction, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the uh, frequency selective um, positive feedback network. And as you pointed out, the component values are different in the two. And that's exactly what sets the, uh, the operating frequency of each. You know, it's kind of interesting that um, you, you pointed out uh, the zero phase um, shift um, uh, for each of those circuits. Um, I can understand one, the one, one of the benefits, I guess, when you have a fixed oscillator frequency, um, either 1900 or 700 hertz as shown here, um, it should be very easy to select the components um, that will give you zero phase shift in that, uh, uh, in that circuit because you're not changing frequency and, it's, and since components are frequency selective um, or frequency uh, sensitive, of course, um, they need to be set for a given frequency and you're all, you're all set. The frequency is not changing. But what about the zero phase again? Why is that important in this case? Well, that's what sets the frequency where the thing oscillates. Having zero phase shift at a certain frequency means that that's where you get uh, infinite positive feedback so that it oscillates there. A uh, little side note, um, the HP oscillators, as many other Weinbridge oscillators of that era, uh, switch bands by changing the resistors, as you mentioned here. The resistors set the value. So they change the frequency uh, of, of oscillation by switching bands with resistors. The capacitors were um, air variable capacitors. They used um, some of the area of 500 picofarad capacitors um, ganged together um, for the oscillator, and that formed the variable, variable portion of the uh, the uh, infinitely uh, variable portion of the uh, feedback network to set the oscillator frequency. Interesting, very interesting, and uh, that that kind of switching of the components would uh, obviously switch the frequency that was being generated, and, and so on. Um, okay, could we look a little bit at the uh, the the circuit, uh, the bipolar transistor, in each of those uh, non-inverting paths of uh, the inputs and um, let's let's chat for a minute how those are gated how essentially that is uh, turning the oscillator on or turning it off or allow you know allowing it to run or not allowing it to run sure it's it's actually in the inverting um, feedback um, circuit going to the inverting uh, um, inverting uh, input of the op amp that sets the negative feedback uh, what it does the bipolar transistor in this case a 2n3904 looks at the audio out of the uh, of the oscillator and its base emitter junction um, acts like a detector so that um, it, it sees the positive peak of the the uh, uh, sine wave coming out of the out of the oscillator and then it's uh, it drives its uh, uh, collector to um, toward ground. It's biased up by a resistor, but it pulls it down toward ground based on how hard the transistor conducts. Um, there's a, a one meg resistor up to VCC at the positive voltage and a 0.22 microfarad capacitor to ground. What this does is uh, you actually get um, chopped pieces of uh, sine wave conduction at the collector, but um, the big RC converts it into a, into a DC voltage. And then the DC is used to bias the gate of a uh, an 
enhancement mode MOSFET, a twin 7000. And varying the DC on the gate of a MOSFET varies its um, resist the resistance of its uh, um, junction. Uh, so that, and then that's connected to uh, a resistor in the feedback loop, a 3.3k resistor. The net effect is, as the output goes higher, the um, uh, transistor detects that, produces a DC level that then increases the um, resistance of the MOSFET to try to drive the signal lower. And then uh, it all settles out so that it produces a stable uh, stable output level. This is a, a feedback AGC uh, system. So then the, the uh, negative feedback here produces the stabilization to the stable sine wave along with positive feedback that sets the frequency. Uh, Jacinto, uh, are you trying to get my attention? No, I think, uh, I think possibly you're using using Vox. It's going to confuse everybody. Can you uh, either shut your mic off or go to uh, push to talk operation? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, my voice was feeding back, and that would confuse folks. Anyway, that's uh, that's how that feedback network works to stabilize the output level. Uh, is that clear, George? Yes, it is. It's interesting whether it's AGC or ALC. I always get the two confused. I'm still wondering though. Well, maybe that is the. Um, it's a it's a level stabilizing function. I'm asking myself why isn't it that, for example, a switch, just a simple sort, you know, in the jumper block alone, without without the uh, the active components, why wouldn't that suffice enough to either uh, um, to enable or disable the oscillator? Well, you're talking about two different things. There is a jumper block to disable or enable the oscillator, but that, that's only to turn it on or off. This sets the output level um, to a known stable value so that any component variation or voltage variation won't, um, won't change the output level. Uh, it's entirely different than turning it on or off. Okay, okay, I got gotcha. you. I just didn't realize that there was an ALC type of uh, need in there. I thought that the oscillator once set for a given level of operation um, I let's see the gain of the gain of the uh, the gain of the last buffer stage. It looks like it's probably a gain of one. So that means each of the each of the oscillators are oscillating at a zero to one um, peak to peak, a one volt peak to peak. So I guess there is some variability that that can happen because of component variations that that the circuits are able to kind of uh, buffer and keep uh, keep to a stable level. Yeah, well, actually, if you look at an oscillator, George, if you don't have if you don't have some sort of automatic adjustment mechanism, um, the positive feedback is going to drive you to either clip on the positive or negative voltage side. Um, you need something to limit gain. When you have positive feedback, the thing will try to uh, amplify infinitely. So you need some negative feedback, some variable negative feedback, to set the thing so that you don't limit on the positive or, or negative swings and to set you in the linear region of the uh, of the oscillator so you have a stable, undistorted output level. Well, do you remember your probably two different animals, but your twin T oscillator from uh, years ago is one of your Joe's quickies in the QRP quarterly. Um, those didn't have any kind of level stabilization uh, circuits in them, uh, yet they were not driven into um, forever amplification or clipping, right? No, they actually were. Um, if you if you bias the thing right, you can get into a, a uh, compression region in the transistor where uh, you get a little bit of distortion. You get uh, maybe 5% distortion. It's tough to see, but, but it actually is somewhat nonlinear and uh, not as stable as having a, uh, a negative feedback loop. Okay, gotcha. 
Well, good. Thank you very much for that. That's a that's a good uh, um, that's a good explanation. And that U two A over on the left hand side that establishes the VCC over two. That's a common technique that um, is used to again establish a, a voltage point that's halfway between the uh, the main VCC and uh, ground, and that is often used as a as a set point for the amplifiers uh, and um, allow positive and negative voltage swings through those particular amplifiers. Um, is it safe to assume, just for the grins, that if you didn't want that, supposing you had a bipolar supply, um, this circuit could be used as a bi- uh, you could use bipolar supply and not have that that particular circuit in there that would take uh, and split the VCC into two. Yeah, that'd work. Uh, but uh, bipolar batteries are uncommon. Nine volt batteries are very common, and using an op amp to uh, split the bias is a cheap, uh, simple way of, of achieving that. Oh, absolutely. Just exploring the kind of the reasons and the approaches that a number of designs taken as far as uh, doing that. I remember um, in um, the new PSK modem, Dave AD7JT uh, and Milt and myself, we used that same technique to establish a midpoint or a midpoint voltage. Uh, for the input audio, ultimately that goes that went into an A to D converter, and um, for the same purpose as as being used here. So it's it's definitely uh, there. Joe, how about some comments? Or how about some uh, yeah? How about some comments about the choice of 700 and 1900? I think you mentioned it before, but let's come back to a functional perspective again. You know what what's what's the significance of those two frequencies? Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, you don't want them harmonically related because if they were harmonically related and you had distortion, uh, the distortion, for example, if you had a 500 hertz and a 1,000 hertz um, pair of tones, the distortion would be at um, 500 and uh, 1,500 hertz. 500 hertz would be the same as one of the tones, so that you couldn't, on a spectrum analyzer, tell the difference between distortion and the original tone. So you want them non-harmonically related, so that any distortion products um, are distinguishable uh, in a spectral view. Um, Secondly, you want tones that are kind of at the high end and low end of the audio range that you're going to be passing through. You don't want them so low that, uh, for example, 300 hertz, that you're going to be uh, severely attenuated by the audio frequency shaping in a transmitter. And similarly, you don't want it high like uh, 2300 hertz, where you'd be rolling off at 2400 hertz um, in the uh, transmitter audio um, section. So anyway, it's it's kind of a compromise, uh, putting them somewhat in the middle um, of the range so that you're not too high or too low to be uh, greatly affected by the uh, audio uh, uh, frequency shaping in the transmitter audio processing chain. I see. I see. Okay. If you go down to the, I think you quickly referenced that at once, but the uh, the nice diagram, the scope picture, and the corresponding spectrum uh, display from a spectrum analyzer uh, from the Ellicraft uh, manual. Um, can you kind of point out to us? I think everybody can see where the where the uh, the scope side, the left hand signals, uh, the upper one is nice and sinusoid in nature, not not rounded, not not flat topped, and whereas the lower one is, and it's clearly being overdriven. And that was the technique that I was describing before that most commonly used in the in the old time days before spectrum analyzers became really super prevalent um, and, and, and more affordable. But in the spectrum display on the right hand side of those, we see the normal or the uh, normal, what do they call it, uh, the normal operation and uh, versus the overdriven. I, I, can, you, can you walk us through the differences in those spectrum displays? 
Sure. If you look at the, the upper picture, the two, uh, Jack, do you have a comment? Yes, may I interrupt a second. Uh, first of all, I'd like to see the circuit. For, uh, are, you, are you looking at a, a, a web page? I'm looking at, uh, in the white page, there's a picture of uh, an envelope, two pictures of envelopes and a uh, spectrum display. Um, I, okay, I'm sorry, do you see I'm it? Late coming, I'm late coming in, so I didn't, uh, what white pages are you talking about? The white page is on the Chat with the Designers website, and I can quickly, do you have the, um, the chat message window um, on your computer? Can you see it? At the bottom, yes. Yeah. Okay, I'll give you the URL for the, um, the white page. You can bring it up on your computer. Okay, that link is where the white page is. If you bring that up with the Internet Explorer, you'll get the white page and be able to follow along, okay? Uh, I didn't get the link, I'm sorry. Did the, uh, link, did the link not come across? Well, I see, uh, I see you. I, see, I got your picture on the right-hand side. On the bottom, I assume, is the chat window. I'm sorry. Well, I can talk you through the URL if you want quickly. Yeah, I have a link to a YouTube video where a young lady is showing a wine bridge oscillator and um, using an op-amp, and she has a light bulb to uh, control the level. No, that's not the link you need. Um, I put the I put the link on the chat uh, at the bottom of the uh, chat window. If you have that on Teamspeak three, um, with a timestamp of twenty forty six ten, my name, and then there's a uh, link there. Well, I got a tab opened up with your name on it. Um, I, I don't see anything there. Yeah, I think what's happening, guys, is, uh, and this might be relevant to others, too, so we'll, we'll continue to work through it here. Jack, at the bottom of the screen, there are two tabs that you see, probably, and two tabs are, are labeled QRP Homebrewing, and the other one is Open HP SDR Server. Can you click on the one that says QRP Homebrewing, and then that will enable you to see a lot of the different text messages that we've been sending back and forth during this uh, program. Okay, I got it. Thank you very much. Yeah, and then in that you'll see Joe and Eamon had also um, put in the uh, uh, the links. So you'll see the links, and everybody that uh, presses things or enters things there, they'll be able to see those messages. So you'll be able to click on that, that link, and that'll take you to our whiteboard. And the whiteboard is a lot of the material that we use and as a guide here during the program and extra references and so on. And about halfway down the page is a die is is a block uh, graphic that in big letters says normal operation and overdriven. So those the, those are the diagrams that we're looking at. Okay, Joe, do you want to continue on here? Sure. Thank, thank you. Okay. Good luck. Um, in the top uh, top spectrum picture on the whiteboard where it says normal operation, uh, you can see a symmetrical picture of the waveform. There are two peaks there. Those are the two audio tones, 700 hertz and uh, 1900 hertz. And then off to the side, there are other little peaks that come along. Those other little peaks are the distortion products. Um, and for reasons I don't want to discuss now, there have been extended discussions on it, but the, the um, strongest Intermod product here is on the left-hand side of those two peaks. It's about 24 dB down from the strongest peak shown here. And take my word for it, it is um, described as being 30 dB down from PEP. And there's a lot of discussion, but at any rate, this shows an IMD of uh, 30 dB. In the overdriven picture below, you can see in the, mod in the uh, envelope, uh, it's flat topped. The picture on the left-hand side is no longer a linear sign picture. It's flat topped. And the resulting picture on the right-hand side shows the spectral distortion, where the, uh, the strongest um, Intermod product is about 
uh, about uh, 12, about 19 dB down. So that's overdriven. It's causing um, a loss of uh, transmitted power. It's causing distortion in the audio channel, and it's going to be spraying uh, noise around the uh, around the band, making you uh, uh, making you an un- unfriendly neighbor to those on uh, nearby channels. Uh, is that all right, George? Yeah, I think so. One of uh, one of my real joy pieces of equipment is a spectrum analyzer. And as you and JJ know, JJ has one as well. Um, gosh, what's the number of mine? I can't. It's an HP 8591E. This is a this is a very nice piece of equipment that uh, I finally was able to afford um, used off of off of eBay. Um, and I was a, I'm actually able to see these kinds of measurements now, and it's so nice being able to do that as opposed to just kind of ballparking. And it's amazing to me, I guess as a comment in general, is that uh, the round topping or the flat topping that we see on the overdriven side, you know, it it, it you can tell that it's rounded. It, I would have said to myself in the past, you know, it's a little rounded. The signal's maybe not that bad. But in looking at the spectrum, the results, the actual spectrum splatter, if you will, from that is, is really quite egregious. And really, you know, that's you can see that that is not a great signal to be transmitting. So, again, using equipment and measurement devices that you have on your bench or your, your bench grows to have gives you real good insight as far as uh, um, the kind of equipment quality, uh, the, sig- the signal quality that your equipment, uh, that your rigs are, are putting out. And it's very useful. Question? Yeah, go ahead, Rick. Yeah, I've seen these, these pictures in other other places. I think one of them, the AWRL uses is a kind of a logo. But I take it that the view that you've got on the screen there is at RF frequencies. You're watching, you're looking at the actual out transmitted output. Uh, how come you've got sine waves 180 degrees out of phase with each other, and why is part of the screen light gray and part of it dark gray? Oh, you're. you're... You're talking about the the oscilloscope views. Um, L, did you were going to say something? Well, first of all, light gray, dark gray. I, I believe it's just a matter of enhancement or the view of whatever you know, whatever uh, uh, graphics package that was used to enhance it to to see the waveforms and so on. I don't think there's anything specially noted notable about that. So it's not an actual scope photo. It might be, but it also might be enhanced. I don't know. I, the the thing that gives it away, of course, is the the shading and the, and the gray. I don't know what uh, in this case Elecraft used uh, uh, as a source for their own graphics. There, um, it might be with proper with, with certain exposure. It might be uh, it might be an actual photograph. I don't know. But as far as the the peaks, um, the, the that's the actual transmitted signal. And if you were to look at an RF wave. Um, at, the, at the right time base, you would—that's uh, the waveform that you would see as um, as being transmitted. Joe, do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, it's uh, it's called the the modulation envelope. What it is, it's um, the two sine waves add up in amplitude, and um, since we're looking at RF here, it's um, it averages to give you what looks like the difference frequency between the two. It's not a uh, not a, a nonlinear mix. It's the summation of the two, and the difference in the peaks, the repetition frequency, would be the difference in frequency between the the two tones, the 900 and the 1700. So it'd be 800 hertz. Um, and it, it just looks this way because that's the way sine waves add up uh, in an envelope here. Um, 
Well, yeah, that, that's just the way an envelope looks. Uh, but you can see in, in the normal operation, the overdriven, that it's nice and rounded at the very top so that you're not distorting, whereas in the overdriven it flat tops, which means that when the two sine waves add up in amplitude at the peak, they're overdriving the amplifier and driving it nonlinear, and that's why it flat tops. Okay. Um, are there other questions around this? This is uh, this is kind of an interesting topic and may not be clear uh, to everyone, or maybe you're spotting something else uh, that you want to highlight. Anybody have any questions here? The power bandwidth function of analyzer to measure two-tone signal. I didn't hear all of that, Jack. Can you speak closer to the mic? Sorry about that. I'm worried about the feedback. Uh, can uh, can you use a, a power bandwidth function of a, a spectrum analyzer to measure the alpha power using a two-tone test? I don't know. Joe, do you, do you have any, any thoughts there? Yeah, you have to be careful with the spectrum analyzer because spectrum analyzer won't give you PEP. What it gives you, if it's set up correctly, is the, um, the power, the instantaneous power of each component. It's not the PEP. You have to, uh, you have to play games to get the PEP because um, it doesn't have a way of uh, calculating the peak envelope power from, from uh, the individual components. All right, Joe, um, let's move down a little bit um, and maybe into some of that IMD measurement discussion. I, I don't think um, I, what, what I did is I took a quote um, from a really good uh, paper. It's noted there in our reference. It's the Motorola, Motorola um, uh, EB, something bulletin, electrical, electronic bulletin or something. Engineering three. bulletin. Engineering bulletin. And it's a really good uh, paper. Um, I really enjoyed it. And the comments there kind of kind of explain what uh, IMD is. And the black diagram there, we, we went through this one time, oh, about a year ago, uh, almost a year ago, as, Joe, you and I were going through uh, some um, power measurements, IMD measurements, uh, for the RF power cube uh, during development. And um, that's the signal chain right from the SDR cube through the soft rock and then ultimately through the uh, RF power cube. Those are the, the, grade, the grade blocks are the product, if you will. And everything that's not grade or not shaded is, are the measurement, um, the measurement equipment. And the very front end of, on the left-hand side of that uh, signal chain, is the Elecraft 2T gen uh, that we were using. Oh, and I was going to, when you asked about the signal level before, Joe, I was going to say it was about 300, 350 millivolts. And indeed, that's that's what it was. We had 345 millivolts RMS. It's a good point to, thing to point out RMS uh, voltage levels, and that's what we were using to feed that particular signal to the cube, the mic input of the cube. And we had alternate uh, signal sources and measurement devices in there too. But measuring it, uh, measuring that signal, ultimately that was input to the cube, amplified, uh, actually transmitted, you know, mix, mixed and transmitted out uh, via the soft rock. We used another really cool Elecraft uh, product called the CP1, the coupler, couple, coupler. It uh, um, takes a signal through, but also allows you to, to take a tap off and, be, for measurement purposes, be able to uh, measure a reduced signal output of that whatever is going through that. And then we put it through some signal step attenuators uh, in order to get the proper signal level going into the RF power cube, which gives 18 dB a gain. And after some filtering, ultimately, uh, we measured the signal through a 40 dB tap. But anyways, long story short is that this uh, the Elecraft 2T gen was used in this whole setup about a year ago and uh, proved to be quite uh, quite indispensable there, don't you think, Joe? 
Indeed it was. <laughs> Once we got all the um, the wrinkles ironed out and got our heads uh, wrapped around what was going on, it's a very, very valuable piece of equipment. And, of course, there you see my test bench with uh, Joe's knees. I'm, I'm the one taking the picture. but no. Oh, and there it is. There's the 2T Gen um, in the lower left-hand corner of my bench. It's got a white uh, plug going into the uh, uh, the output of the 2T Gen, and that takes it over to the input of the, uh, the little test bed that we had for the SDR Cube. And um, with it, uh, we were able to, you know, drive that uh, drive that system. So um, that, uh, that kind of... As far as IMD, oh, there's another picture of a two-tone test pattern generation, the black and white photos, and the test signals as seen on a on a um, on a spectrum analyzer. And I guess this is a properly adjusted or pretty good, well-adjusted uh, signal. They don't see too many IMD products in there. Yeah, the third and fifth uh, uh, distortion products, third and fifth order distortion products are shown. They're way down. This is this is not typical of a uh, uh, regular power amplifier. This is this is um, probably something in a uh, uh, much more linear system operating at uh, very low power levels. Um, any reasonable power amp is uh, uh, is going to provide much uh, much more distortion than that. Yes, yeah, you kind of can't get away from that. Um, Joe, do you want to, as we, we're, looking, we're coming to the witching hour here, but uh, maybe we can wrap up with a discussion about PEP. I know you have uh, particular thoughts in that area. And um, again, using uh, um, a two-tone generation here is going to be useful in measuring the power output of your of a transmitter. Yeah, PEP is peak envelope power. Um, as I mentioned earlier, when you when you have a single signal, you have um, a CW mode, and there, there are words about this in the discussion here. When you have a single tone, um, the peak envelope power um, is the average power. Um, there's there's no change. When you have um, multiple tones in there or audio, the um, the peak is is higher than um, the average. Uh, and I, I won't go into all the reasons, but the two-tone is, is very handy because you know deterministically if the two tones are equal, the uh, when the sine waves of the audio all line up properly, the um, voltage, the modulated voltage that comes out is twice the power of either one of them. I'm sorry, it's twice the voltage of either one of them. And since power is the square of the, uh, of the voltage, uh, the PEP is four times the uh, signal from either one. So it, it is a very easy way of uh, very quickly uh, driving a, uh, an amplifier to get the um, peak envelope power, to see how much peak envelope power and how much distortion there is. So you set up the transmitter for um, the distortion you want, uh, determine the PEP you can get to get that level of distortion, and then when you're putting a voice or anything else in, you can adjust the levels so that you get that exact PEP so that you're operating with the uh, the optimum uh, optimum linearity. There are other words here uh, for that, but uh, in a nutshell, that's what it is. If you look at things like the KX3 I was just looking at, they apparently have a PEP measuring device, and uh, they know what their PEP is going to be for good distortion, and they tell you how to set it up with voice so that you get exactly that power so that you know you're going to be operating uh, with the amplifier uh, being linear and not having ultimate uh, distortion. All righty, that, that clears that up. Uh, Jack, go ahead. A lot of the newer rigs, modern rigs, have equalization adjustments where you can set highs and lows. How does that affect the, uh, the distortion? So the question, Joe, is with different controls that rigs have on for equalization, 
there at the um, audio input of a rig, is that going to affect distortion levels? It can, but in general, the most rigs are set up so that um, the ALC takes care of that. And if you adjust uh, it so that the, you get equivalent ALC readings, it'll keep the amplifier linear. Uh, as with anything, if you put too much uh, compression in there, you can drive it nonlinear. And uh, it gets to be an art form to set it up properly. Yeah, I guess that uh, it sits to the rig rig uh, developer's advantage not to let the user shoot himself in the foot. So by limiting the controls within the capability of the rig's um, ability to um, to kind of balance or keep it within uh, a normal operating range, but yet still offer some variability to the frequency response, a.k.a. the equalization, um, that, that's probably indeed what uh, what happens and how their user is protected from overdriving inadvertently by making some of those adjustments. Yeah, but what about Class A or Class AB mode? Some of the high-end rigs have, you know, a Class A setting, um, and I think you end up running half power. Um, I'm not sure why you'd want to do that, but, you know, like the FT2000 is Class A, class a mode. Minor no, Joe. I'm sorry, I was servicing the... Uh servicing the uh, the chat window to get a link properly um uh would you repeat the uh, repeat your question jack yeah some of the uh high-end rigs like yezu like the ft2000 they have a class a mode and i assume it's for reducing distortion but you end up with half power yeah a class a mode will give you less distortion if you're not overdriving it um but uh, you waste more power, and uh, indeed, you have to crank back uh, the power so that you don't over-dissipate things. Um, AB, AB1 is uh, is more common. Um, I suppose um, the ultimate uh, hi-fi uh, types would want to go Class A, but, um, well, you know, it's just something else to play with. Yeah, it looks like what they're doing is they're kicking up the bias on the uh, transistor, the output transistor, the increase the bias, and probably also on the drivers as well. Yeah, that's what Class A does. In Class A, the uh, amplifier is biased at um, half power all the time, so that uh, uh, or ha halfway in conduction. Whereas in AB or other modes, uh, the, the devices are uh, not biased on all the time. Uh, but that's that's another discussion altogether. All right, um, we're kind of at the end of the whiteboard, or or the end of the material that we wanted to cover at the end of the uh, of this session, just about. Um, um, are, are there any other experiences? Anybody else want to comment on, on your uh, particular uh, experiences with IMD or, or PEP measurements? Yeah, I, I do. Sure. Are you, hearing me, are you hearing me okay? Yep, as long as you speak into the mic, I think you're cool, Jack. Okay. I, I went into the sound settings, and um, I had the microphone attached to the speaker, and I was always getting feedback, even uh, without pressing push to talk, so I was able to fix that. Anyway... I have a, I repair radios and things, and every once in a while I like to do a two-tone test. And I'm using a, those HP8924s, and you can usually set up a two-tone test with that. What are the best frequencies to use for a two-tone? Well, you, um, the guidelines are you want it to be uh, above the minimum um, range where you're going to be rolling audio off in, in the audio spectrum uh, at the low end and, and below the top. Um, Ellicraft chose 700 and 1900 hertz, which works out pretty well. Basically, anything that um, is within that range and is not harmonically related, but is about 1000 hertz apart, um, is acceptable. 700 and, or 900 and 1700 give you a pretty good picture, a pretty good separation so that you can resolve what's going on on the spectrum analyzer. I believe the ARRL uses something else, but it's all 
all in the ballpark. I'd go with uh, either of those two values. Um, idea being you get an unambiguous display on the spectrum analyzer that you can really tell what's happening. Okay, thank you. No problem. That's what we're here for. Alrighty. So not hearing much uh, much more. Um, if this hasn't inspired you to go out and and get yourself a 2T Gen from Allocraft. I'm not sure exactly what would. It's a really handy piece of uh, equipment to have in the bench. By the way, if, if you didn't spot it from the circuit diagram, you can turn each uh, tone individually on or off. And I think there's there's opportunity there's there are times, Joe, when I when I just use it as a single oscillator just to get a tone for power measuring po um, average power uh, going into the system. Um, in fact, I used it uh, to kind of verify. Um, let's see, Chuck. Chuck Nolan's not in here today. He sometimes joins us. And uh, I forgot what Chuck's uh, call sign is. And N4 or something. And he was having trouble with... Uh, 6LTV slash 4. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, he was having trouble with seeing if his microphone filtering was working right. And the way that I quickly tested it, again, just as kind of a, a third, uh, an, an alternate way of testing was to turn on the uh, only the 7 hertz, 700 hertz tone and note the power output from the cube and then change the tone to be 1900, which is higher than the equalization curve. And uh, indeed, there was, there was, uh, there was more power um, with the particular equalization setting that I had. So anyways, there, there's opportunity to use this thing just as a simple audio oscillator, not necessarily only for two-tone generation, but you can use it for any time you happen to need a, a nice uh, a nice pure tone. So anyways, I don't know how much it costs off the hand, off the top of my head. It's like in the, I don't know, $25 range, and it's a pretty handy thing to have on the bench. Even to whip it up if you're a home brewer and you want to do it yourself. Um, there's a couple of other homebrew circuits on the on the web if you do a search on two-tone generation and uh, uh, get yourself kind of an oscillator that will, will do the job for you. All right, um, one one final uh, one final call for questions and then we'll we'll wrap it up. Anybody have any comments as far as this project or this this topic or any other uh, uh, project along the way here and chat with the designers? Yeah, well, yeah, I got one last thing. Um, spectrum analyzers. I just bought one of those Regal spectrum analyzers. Has anyone used it for doing two-tone tests? I guess not. Why, why do you ask? Uh, is it uh, something about the Rigol that you'll have uh, that you have questions about? No, no, I just haven't done. I haven't used it yet. I've used the uh, the HP eighty nine twenty four. But this new Rigol is, uh, it, it actually seems to be a pretty nice spectrum analyzer made in China. And it, it, it pretty much rivals the, uh, the HP. And I was just wondering if anyone has tried it yet. I haven't, I haven't tried it myself. I've been doing other things with it, um, uh, like checking standing wave on antennas. But um, I haven't tried the two-tone test. Yeah, it should be. It should do a good job as long as you get the uh, the VBW setting to be low enough, such that you can see the separation of the tones there. Uh, you know, from uh, uh, on the screen, you should be should be all set. I was that close to buying a, a Rigol uh, oscilloscope, and then another deal came along for a uh, an Agilent, and I, I got that thing. Um, but I was very impressed with the Rigol stuff. Um, just a quick one: how how much did you pay for that spectrum analyzer there, Jack? It was uh, 1500 I think. Uh, I also have an Agilent oscilloscope. I got the uh, GSOX um, 30, what is it? Uh, 3024, so 300 megahertz um, oscilloscope, uh, four channel. 
Uh, sounds like you're all you're all set there. That's a nice scope. Um, um, yeah, and the fifteen hundred is probably a, a a good used price for a, a good price for a used uh, good quality uh, piece of equipment. So let us know how that works out for you. All right, any other questions before we wrap it here? I'll just uh, on the topic of of uh, spectrum analyzers. Um, for the Rigol or Regal or whatever it is, I remember a year, about two years ago, I was getting a spectrum analyzer at work, and um, I was comparing uh, the Rigol with uh, with with uh, Agilent or HP, um, and I couldn't get. When I tried looking at the specs for the Rigol, it looked like they were playing a lot of games with the specs regarding the uh, the spurious free dynamic uh, range and and stuff like that. A lot of things that said typical, a lot of things that didn't look really uh, solid. So even though I ended up with something that's about 20 years older and um, a lot less features in terms of uh, computer integration, although I do have a GPI, HPIB port, um, I ended up getting the Agilent. So that's just my, my point of view. I don't know whether the latest Rigol is better than the one I was looking at two years ago. But anyway, that's my two cents. All right. Good, uh, good comments there. And Alan corrected me in the text area, and I should have said RBW, not VBW, for being able to see the close-in signals uh, on the uh, spectrum analyzer. Thank you, Alan. Other comments here? Okay, Pete, I was waiting for you to speak up. What, what you got? Oh, okay. I was just going to say there's a couple of reviews and teardowns of the Rigol scopes and uh, uh, spec analyzers on the on the Internet, YouTube, and so forth, and uh, somebody who wants to investigate it might take a look at those. You can find just about anything. Uh, for those who are fans of older equipment, uh, Central Electronics made phasing-type sideband exciters of various kinds, and if you look at any of the old manuals from the Bama site or the mods.dk site or anywhere else, you find an old manual. They have a lot of scope pattern pictures indicating adjustments and misadjustments uh, dozens of pattern, dozens of scope pictures because they really expected people to tune these things up from uh, the get-go, and they're all hand uh, hand-drawn scope pictures, which are kind of neat to look at. Oh, very good. Maybe uh, maybe what you could do is point me to one of them uh, after the show and send it over by email or something. I'll include it in the uh, whiteboard just as an example to kind of uh, to better make your point. Thanks, Pete. Okay, Joe, do you want to uh, kind of wrap it, wrap, put the ribbons on this, wrap it up, and take us home? Okay, as long as my voice holds out. Sure. All right. Tonight we uh, we did a fast run through on um, two tone testing of uh, transmitters, uh, primarily aimed at uh, single sideband transmitters that hams would use. Um, we talked about the uh, using two tone testing to ascertain the linearity of uh, RF power amps, and in particular we talked about using a particular product, the um, Elecraft 2T Gen which is a, um, a good um, hobbyist grade, but uh, uh, device with commercial performance to generate the uh, very clean, uh, precise audio tones needed to do the two-tone testing. We talked about the significance of the testing and um, uh, showed some scope pictures and uh, spectrum analyzer pictures to, uh, to demonstrate linear and nonlinear performance of an amplifier. And then uh, did a brief discussion of the effect of um, uh, distortion as a matter of um, controlling peak, un uh, peak envelope power in a uh, linear amplifier. The importance of not overdriving the amplifier with the modulation peaks to generate distortion. And we've had some good feedback from folks, uh, discussion about what's happening, and some clarifications. So we thank everyone for that, and um, that'll be a wrap for tonight. Good evening. All righty. Thank you, Joe, and thank you one and all for attending chat with the designers. 
We'll see you in about two weeks from this date with episode number 62 with the topic of, I don't know what it's going to be yet, but if you've got an idea, let us know. Um, we've got a good pool of stuff to pull from, but uh, we certainly would like to be focusing on things that uh, that you guys, our regular attendees and listeners, uh, want to hear about more. So 73 All, good night. This is George N2APB and Joe N2CX saying good night from Chat with the Designers. I got uh, I got a good good one for next uh, next time. Sure, go ahead. How about um, noise reduction systems? ESP noise.